1: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast
2: with George Galloway. Absolutely not, said Pakistan's Prime Minister. And the diktat of the United States was refused. And now he lies languishing in a dank C-class jail cell in Fort Attic in Rawalpindi, But the people have not forsaken him and he will be back. Absolutely not, say the African Union, to the idea of ECOWAS invading Niger at the behest of France and the United States. Absolutely not, say the supporters of Donald Trump in the United States of America, as each indictment is hurled against him in the attempt to drive him out of the race for the presidential elections next year. His fan base is rising, his crowds exponentially growing. The Democrats are terrified of Donald Trump. And absolutely not see an increasing number of soldiers in the Ukrainian army, including in elite units, when they are asked to feed themselves into the mincing machine, which has seen the demise of perhaps 400,000 of their fellow soldiers. Absolutely not to the diktat of empire. That's the message of tonight's show. I'm glad you're here. It's the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, this show is dedicated to my mother, who was, as she has been for the last 69 years, the very first to wish me a happy birthday today. Keep going strong, Ma. You've still got all your marbles. And you are, well, I'll not say what age you are, but it is a terrific one. I will be talking tonight about matters of great import across the world in Britain, in the United States, in Africa, in Asia, in Pakistan, and indeed in the South China Sea. Because everything is boiling in the world at this moment in time. And nobody knows if it's going to boil over here or there. But the likelihood of an explosion is still extremely high. And we'll be deep diving into these possibilities in the course of the show this evening. Adding insult to very considerable injury, the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has just issued a message to the people of Pakistan, looking forward to their free and fair election, and looking forward to the protection of their rights to freedom of speech and assembly. As State Department tweets go, it probably takes the biscuit. This is the very same State Department that caused the overthrow of the elected Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. This is the very State Department who, with its local monkeys in charge in Islamabad, has cracked down on freedom of speech almost in its totality. Every television station, every newspaper is now absolutely dragooned at the point of a military bayonet, a kind of martial law without the words being attached to it. No one is allowed to report any story which challenges the criminals that were imported from the West, principally London, to be placed instead of Imran Khan. Freedom of Assembly... The supporters of Imran Khan have been gunned down and gassed. They've been batoned and bludgeoned. They've been disappeared and murdered. Their womenfolk have been taken hostage. And Blinken has the nerve to talk about the right to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and fair elections. When the prime minister and leader of undeniably the biggest party in Pakistan is in prison and is disqualified from running in these free and fair elections. Mind you, that's exactly what they're trying to do in the United States of America. Donald Trump now faces 77 charges in multiple indictments. I look at my watch because another is expected momentarily from Georgia, where the presidential election in 2020 was almost surely stolen. Now, I fly no flags for Donald Trump. He ain't MAGA for me. But Donald Trump was robbed of the presidency in the last uh, presidential election, and they're determined to rob him of the next. Because the one thing about Trump that you could say is that he is out with the sure control of the deep state, of the bowels of the American state who have for so long controlled democratically elected leaders from the get-go. And when they felt that they could not control them any further, they murdered them. In the case of Jack Kennedy, in the case of Robert F. Kennedy, on his way to the White House, murdered in plain sight in California in 1968. But will they can't murder them or don't want to murder them, they can murder their term in office. And that is exactly what happened to Donald Trump. The absolutely fatuous, false, fake news that Donald Trump was a Russian agent has been used to destroy his first term, and now lawfare is determined to stop him having a second. But I've been looking at the rallies that Donald Trump has been holding while Joe Biden sits on the beach whilst Maui burns and he has not even yet deigned to visit or even fly over the people of a state of the Union of the USA, however unjustly, unfairly it was acquired. They're trying to kill Trump and they may even literally kill him because they know that if Trump is on the ballot against Joe Biden... There's only one winner in that contest. And all the ballot rigging, all the ballot box stuffing, all the electronic voting machines, all the power cuts and breakdowns and drainage problems, all the water pipes bursting in the world will not stop a landslide victory for Donald Trump in the presidential election. And then you've got to imagine, though you can't be sure, Trump will go a-hunting, for the deep state operatives who have lied and twisted their way through the last eight years in American politics. The reality is that Donald Trump can run for office even from prison. But if the United States authorities and those in power in Washington think that they can safely arraign Donald Trump and put him behind bars like Imran Khan, they may have another thing coming. Because Donald Trump has scores of millions of followers, and millions and millions of those have weapons. And the danger of civil conflict, even a new civil war in the United States, should not be underestimated. Although I suspect that the powers that be are underestimating it. Still, we'll be talking to Pulitzer Prize winner, Chris Hedges, about that later in the show. Absolutely not, said the African Union, to the very idea uh, that Nigeria, for that is what ECOWAS is, is supposedly the West African security force, but in fact, those that would be doing the fighting and the dying are Nigerian. Uh, The idea of a Nigerian invasion of their neighbor, Niger, the second poorest country on the earth, has been ruled out by the African Union. That does not mean constitutionally that it cannot happen, but the chips are now piling up on the side of those who say that setting fire to West Africa to keep the elites in Paris and Washington warm, in the words of my peerless guest, David Handin, last week in, on Wednesday, uh, on Sunday rather, on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, The idea that setting fire to Africa, setting a bushfire right across the Sahelian belt in Africa is any kind of a good idea, is dying, withering on the vine. The fact is that the forces that are now moving in the world, the tectonic plates that are now shifting in the world, are shifting decisively against those who thought that for so long their diktat, which ran, would continue to run forever. France is out of Africa. And the sooner the French government realize that and act with good grace and try by diplomatic and commercial means to make peace and friends again with the Francophile parts of Africa, the better it will be for them as well as obviously the better for the people of West Africa. The United States is not wanted in Africa. Everybody in Africa knows exactly what the United States stands for, stood for, in support of, in defense of apartheid, in defense of white supremacy in Africa, and in defense of corporate raiders who made life a misery for the masses in Africa in order to enrich themselves and power their own lights. I keep repeating this equation because to me it sums up in microcosm the situation in the world today. One in three light bulbs in Paris burning this evening is powered by the uranium dug from the earth of Niger. But 80% of the people of Niger have no electricity at all. That state of affairs in Africa, and indeed across the world, could not possibly continue forever. And I believe its time is rapidly coming to an end. I was one of the organisers of the great event which marked the 70th birthday of the great and late Nelson Mandela. I was one of those who argued that this event should take place in Wembley Stadium when others argued it should be restricted to the Albert Hall. I said that this event, if we build it, the people will come. My side of the argument prevailed. We booked Wembley Stadium, and Mandela's 70th birthday concert became iconic throughout the ages. We built it, and they came. And the biggest acts in the world came to pay tribute to the leader of the liberation movement in South Africa that night at Wembley. But there was an unknown young woman that I saw there for the first time. And most observers and viewers and most of those in attendance were seeing her for the first time. She was a small African-American woman with curly hair, standing alone just with her guitar. She came onto the stage and sat on an ordinary chair with no backing group, no uh, chorus, no backing singers, nothing, just her. Her name was Tracy Chapman. And as she strung the guitar and began to strum what became an iconic hit, I heard from her these lines. Poor people gonna rise up and take their share. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's theirs. That's what's happening in Africa today. That's what needs to happen across the whole of the world. And I believe that that process has begun. As a very great Russian once said, there are decades when nothing happens, but there are weeks when decades happen. And I believe that we are now into those weeks. I myself am now plunged into a media war Uh, with the bagman, the fraudulent so-called president of the Great Republic of Nigeria. In ordinary times, he might never have caught my eye if he hadn't been threatening to invade his poor neighbour and have Africans murdering Africans. For the sake of France, he might not have caught my eye. After all, I have many fish to fry, but he did catch my eye. And then he set his dogs a barking against me on social media and to their eternal disgrace on one after another after another of Nigeria's newspapers. Stooge journalists wrote the kind of foul slander that the bagman and his entourage, his comprador, uh, intended them to do. And so, as most of you know, I'm not someone who runs away or backs down from a fight. So a state of media war now exists between me and the tin pot tyrant masquerading as the president of Nigeria. I will not rest until he is stripped from office, having fraudulently obtained it. I don't say that because he was a bagman for the mafia in Chicago, that, that necessarily disqualifies him as president of Nigeria. That's a matter for the Nigerian people, not for me. But when I discover, as I have discovered, that the documents he submitted were literally fraudulent, that he had no legal right even to be on the ballot, and that the ballot itself was rigged then I have to stand with the people of Nigeria. There is, of course, the possibility, only a possibility, that the judiciary in Nigeria will do their duty, will refuse to tolerate this farce now that the evidence is in. It's not all in because the United States refuses to part with, for the time being, the documentation that would prove it beyond any possibility of contradiction, but the leaking of parts of that documentation and the securing of enough evidence already renders his presidency null and void. And that's why in Nigeria, and I hope to encourage everywhere in the world, the slogan, all eyes on the judiciary, must now be raised by all those who wish the best for the people of Nigeria, for the people of Africa as a whole. Just a moment or two left for me to mention my own country of the United Kingdom. I sometimes don't get the opportunity to do so enough here on the Mother of All talk shows as the situation in the world goes to hell on a handcart as a helter-skelter of international events makes it difficult to focus on a Britain that seems be calmed. I say seems be because I'm absolutely certain that under the surface in Britain, there is boiling rage waiting to erupt at the sheer inadequacy, at the mendacity, at the criminal conduct of the governors of Britain and their so-called opposition. Never have I seen a time, and I have now been in politics for quite a bit over 50 years, and served in Parliament for almost 30 of those years. And now, from abroad, can see my country even more clearly than perhaps I could when I was there. I have never known a time when the British political class was so small in the teeth, in the face of such enormous problems. We have a political class on both sides of the aisle that is literally and metaphorically midget, dwarf, pygmy. That's the words that strike me or come to my mind when I look at Rishi Sunak and any on the conservative benches that might replace him and Sir Keir Starmer or Sir Kid Starver, as some of us like to call him. Never was there more undistinguished set of political leaders in Britain in the face of some of the worst problems that our country has faced since 1940 and 1941. There is no Churchill in this picture. There is no one who is going to step forward and save our nation. Our nation is doomed unless it can somehow find the way to shake these impostors from their purchase on the government bench and on the opposition bench. I would like to take credit for having launched here just a few weeks ago the demand for a net zero referendum in Britain. Our leaders committed us to net zero without a single vote being cast for it, without a national debate worthy of the name of any kind. We committed ourselves to a cold and penurious future on the utterly bogus precept that man-made climate change was an existential threat to humanity, that that threat was man-made, and that Britain, whose emissions are 0.09% of all the emissions in the world, would solve this problem or make a significant contribution to its solution by switching off our cars and walking away, by scrapping our boilers, at very great financial cost. By placing our faith in windmills rather than the oil and gas which God bestowed to us in abundance underneath our waters, by turning our back on nuclear power, by turning our back and drowning our coal reserves, a thousand years of them in Britain, we set ourselves on a course towards oblivion. And I don't want to see the British people suffer. The British people are not responsible for the crimes of their rulers, especially crimes committed before universal suffrage even came to pass in my country. But it is the British people who are now being asked to pay the price for empire and for Britain's new and reduced role as the tale of the American dog. We'll be talking about all of these things over the course of the next one and a half or so hours. Stay tuned. It is the mother of all talk shows.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
3: You are listening
2: to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, I'd like to thank all those who gave me the best birthday present just an hour or so ago when I reached half a million followers on Twitter. Thank you for all who made that possible on my birthday. We've got a poll running. Does NATO create wars? Simple question. Yes or no? It's a big poll. 18,407 people have already voted, but it's the most one-sided poll we have ever run. 99% say yes on Telegram, 91% on Twitter, 95% on the YouTube community poll, and 97% on the YouTube stream. I'd like to hear from the 1%. The 9%, the 5%, the 3% who beg to differ. I promise you, you'll be given a fair hearing. Now, our first guest this evening is a very fine Englishman abroad. A former military man, a bit of a tough. He must strike quite a sight and make quite an impact in Russian society where he now lives and blogs and analyzes and entertains us here on the Mother of All talk shows. That's right, it's the one and only Mike Jones. Mike, welcome back to the Mother of All talk shows. Let's start with that point. Uh, Are you still as well-received in Moscow society as you've ever been in the long time now that you've been living there?
3: Uh, Thank you again, Mr. Galloway, for having me on. Uh, Yes, the answer is, well, thanks to my work. Uh, yes, absolutely. I'm very well received. Uh, people are very pleased with the um, efforts that I've made uh, to go out and see for myself what is actually happening in in specifically Donbass. But also, the. I, I have to chastise those people that have voted about NATO starting wars for pushing that Putin propaganda. Uh, the IMF was also accused recently with their... Uh, uh, optimistic forecast on the russian economy of also pushing putin propaganda so you can see where i'm coming from uh, there why why yes. do people receive me so well in russia
2: I, i'll tell you why i ask uh, there's a new and on the face of it utterly ludicrous spy scare in england right now i don't know if you've caught up with that news but three bulgarians one of whose Email address was 007. Three Bulgarians running a bed and breakfast on the south coast of England, who were famous for visiting their neighbours with cakes and pies, who seem like, on the face of it, absolutely impeccable characters, have now been arrested and are charged with espionage in the British courts and it is scribble all over again. It is front page news. The Russians with snow on their boots with a vodka bottle peeking out of their pocket with a dark beard and speaking with a funny accent are under your bed even if it's a bed and breakfast in the south coast of England. Do people in Moscow appreciate just how much the British
3: don't like them? Uh, absolutely. The Well, in the sense that now more than ever, it's become more apparent that uh, what Putin was warning in the Munich uh, comf- uh, Security Conference speech, you know, with the British with the dagger behind their back but the smile on their face, that's very much apparent. I, I was very much amused by that story, particularly that uh, one landlords testified that they ordered their super breakfast for seven pounds with four slices of bread, whilst the British were struggling. <laughs> it was absolutely food <laughs> across the board <laughs> with the super English breakfast. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's Western media these days there, uh, but certainly perpetuating this sort of myth of the boogeyman. You may mention about Scripple. Yeah, I got those similar vibes there of look this way, but not that way.
2: Yes, there's an ancient hatred, really. Uh, I've been telling people uh, here uh, just this day, actually. It predates Putin by a long way. It predates even the Bolsheviks, uh, and they're long dead. Uh, It predates the Russian Revolution. It's a hatred that goes back Well, deep into the 19th century, and maybe even earlier than that, uh, what do you think lies behind that ancient hatred by the British
3: uh, of the Russians? I honestly can't put my finger on it, even when I look through history. We have to acknowledge that it was the British that also attacked St. Petersburg, along with the Swedes as well as part of the reason for Kronstadt and all the fortifications along there. Quite where this vitriol and all this hatred came from, I don't know. Britain also accused of stealing the Tsar's gold that he was entrusted to them uh, back before the revolution and around that time. Uh, I really don't know. But the point is that I've often made uh, just earlier today is that has become very much apparent to the Russian people Putin's warnings over these years has very much come. The British being the, one of the most aggressive in all of this with arms supplies, with rhetoric. And as you've just alluded to in your monologue just there about it doesn't match anymore. Whereas the British Empire used to have the teeth to, to back up and bully and get its way in the world. That was seceded to the U.S. and now the U.S. is facing the similar fate. The political class just doesn't have the credibility nor the means to back up these big, bold claims and uh, these threats that they make, particularly now towards uh, places that they colonize, such as Africa as well. We're seeing Niger uh, rise up and Burkina Faso, along many others as well. It really beggars belief. But the point now is that it's becoming so visible to not just Africa, but across the rest of the world as well.
2: The war isn't going well. And in fact, you could say the hatred, the propaganda uh, rises in inverse proportion uh, to the lack of success on the battlefield. Uh, It's uh, above evident now to all except the willfully blind uh, that the Ukrainians backed by all of the NATO powers uh, with all their weapons, all their money, and all their propaganda cannot prevail. As I've said from the beginning, it is not possible as a matter of definition for a nuclear superpower to be defeated in a conventional war in its next door neighbor, because that presupposes the destruction, the existential ruin of that nuclear superpower. And so the nuclear superpower, and America would be just the same if Mexico was uh, making war on it, or Canada making war on it, Uh, the the superpower can only increase the ante as necessary and reach for bigger and more fearsome weapons were it to be facing defeat in a conventional war. That truth is now self-evident. The Ukrainian forces, including some elite units, are refusing to go any more into that mincing machine. I have a feeling the tipping point in this war has been reached. You're, reached. you're, you're, a, you're an ex-military man yourself. How does the battlefield look to you?
3: Absolutely catastrophic. Uh, this much-lauded counteroffensive has been an utter tragic a disgusting failure really particularly given how many ukrainians were grabbed off the streets and thrown into the front lines some with days of training some with weeks uh the the uk was very proud to say we gave these guys a a half measure sort of training course and then just sent them straight into the meat grinder i've had interviews with uh, dpr soldiers who have spoken with these prisoners of war Uh, i have a report actually uh, right here Uh, Ukrainian document that was translated for me from the what they they didn't jokingly term uh they termed it as the Diedushka battalion the grandfather's battalion because most of them were over 45 around 45 65 years of age these were more senior men that had been mobilized the losses that were reported are honestly catastrophic uh those that were lucky to surrender just today, it's been reported that 500 men uh, surrendered, refused to fight in Zaporozhye direction. As they, as these battalions are down to about, uh, they've lost about 63 to 78% of their fighting strength. What really irks me, uh, we, we, we talk a lot, kind of flippantly, about the corruption in Ukraine. But when I was told about the reporting of the dead is intentionally delayed by the commanders so that they can keep taking the salaries of these soldiers after their deaths so they don't report it up the chain of command and they most certainly do not report it to the families so they can keep cashing in on these paychecks which the this latest biden call to congress for 24 billion will no doubt end up funding It also gets worse than that when I hear reports from these prisoners of war that if they do not actually split their salaries with their commanders, they will be sent to these frontline storm, shock storm trooper battalions. So you have this choice. Do you want to be held in reserve or do you want to go to the front line? If you don't want to go to the front line, you've got to give us a proportion of your salary. I don't know how much that is. Uh, Those are the reports that are consistently coming out from what I'm hearing of these uh, prisoners of war in Donbass, which is, as you can imagine, not just shocking, but heartbreaking to say the least, particularly with the work of the likes of journalist Isabella Lieberman, who is trying to match Ukrainian prisoners of war with their families in Ukraine.
2: In normal circumstances, in a normal country, uh, this situation where soldiers are voting with their feet, either uh, across the lines in surrender, or in the case of the uh, Zaporizhia direction, literally refusing orders, refusing to fight uh, on the basis that uh, it's not a lack of courage. These soldiers have shown great courage over the last 500 days or so. It's, uh, it's a realization that they're fighting a losing battle, and moreover, a battle for unworthy Commanders and leaders, and above all, their allies. Uh, it's one thing to die; it's another thing to die for Joe Biden and Antony Blinken. Uh,
3: absolutely, I would agree. Even that with the Ukrainians faced with what is almost certain death. Uh, not to mention that the other reports being given that this Western-supplied equipment that's being given to them. I had I did an interview. Uh, with Russian a Russian soldier who'd picked up communications thanks to a Ukrainian dissident that claimed that tw- uh, eight out of 12 AS-90 supplied by the UK were faulty to the point they were non-operational uh, upon delivery. So that's only four that were actually able to be used, one of them including the firing button was malfunctioning. These were in workshops, and of course, uh, Russian intelligence knew exactly where the workshops were. When I asked, what are you going to do with this information? The answer was, of course, we will destroy them. Today, we've heard of the 82nd Air Mobile Assault Brigade, which is one of the last reserves, 2,000 men, now being thrown into battle with Challenger tanks. So it's very likely that we shall see Challenger 2 tanks Against the will of the British, or at least the initial orders of the British to hold them back and not use them on the front line, it's quite likely that in the coming days, we're going to see those burning on the battlefield. That's going to have a political uh, ramification. <laughs> uh, just I'm talking just politics. We know that this order was given because the ramification is going to have on the British military industrial complex to see this horrendous sight of Challenger 2s burning on the battlefield, potentially.
2: Well, uh, I don't know what happened there. Uh, It disappeared from my end, but I hope the viewer got that fulsome answer from Mike Jones. And I thank Mike very much for this latest appearance on the mother of all talk shows. Great to see you again, Mike, looking uh, so well and healthy. Does NATO create wars? Yes or no? You can have your say almost right up to the end of the show. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. I'm very proud of my film Killing Kelly and very proud of that cinema poster too. Quickest way you could watch the film entirely free of charge is by supporting me on Patreon, Patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. Though you can also get DVD of it uh, from my uh, shop.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: In a sane world, Chris Hedges would be too busy in Foggy Bottom this evening to appear on the mother of all talk shows. He'd be the greatest Secretary of State the United States of America has ever had. Well, their loss is our gain. And he joins me again now on the mother of all talk shows. Chris, welcome as uh, always. We'll get into uh, more familiar territory for you and me. Uh, But let's start with the extraordinary situation in Hawaii and the Washington government's response to it. Um, I remember vividly Katrina. I remember George W. Bush. I even remember him saying... uh, great job, Brownie, uh, to the uh, clearly hapless, bumbling uh, head of the agency that was supposed to respond. And I think a week or so later, he was gone, Brownie. Uh, But at least Bush flew over the place. Bush seemed to understand the political optics uh, of appearing to care uh, about the people in New Orleans. Joe Biden's been sitting on a deck chair, refusing to comment, whilst Hawaii was in flames. What do you make of that?
1: Two things. One, the country uh, is, of course, being disemboweled by the war machine. Uh, So none of the sirens work, none of the warning systems work. Uh, The infrastructure that is supposed to cope with emergencies don't work. They've been stripped down, uh, both in terms of uh, in terms of staff and in terms of equipment, whether that's the levees that broke in New Orleans or the toxic spill in Ohio, etc. It's kind of endless. Uh, so th- this is just one more symptom of the fact of, of the physical decay that has beset the empire. Empires hollow themselves out from the inside, and that's precisely it's only quite visible as you travel from decayed city to decayed City, So that's the first point. The second point is uh, Biden is barely, barely sentient. He, he's uh, clearly managed, uh, even on the public stage, there have been numerous moments where he's not quite sure where he is or what he is saying. And this is only getting worse. Remember, in the whole the Democratic National Committee has decreed that there will be no debates in the primary. And I, I suspect Biden will find a way to withdraw from uh, any debates within uh, the, the general election as well, because uh, he, he even even as heavily managed as he is, uh, he's um, uh, his faculties are not there. And I don't say this in any way as ageism. I think Bernie Sanders is older than Biden. Uh, and Bernie is, of course, incredibly sharp and swift, but Biden isn't. Uh, and so they've got a problem. And that problem is how to keep him essentially uh, as uh, it, you know as protected from public scrutiny as possible. So uh, that that is kind of fits with this uh, uh, kind of disconnected presidency uh, that typifies the the Biden administration.
2: Well, Mick Jagger is the same age as Joe Biden. Uh, in fact, there I'd rather go. Mick Jagger was in the uh, White House than than Joe Biden. So it's not about the number. Uh, 80. It it is about the clearly visible cognitive uh, decline and performative uh, decline, which begs the question. I mean, I I could put it in a paraphrase John P. McEnroe. You cannot be serious. They cannot be serious about running
1: him again uh, next November. Can they? No, I think they are. And their strategy is twofold. One, they will discredit and destroy uh, any primary challenge in the case of Kennedy uh, or in a third-party challenge uh, with Cornell West, and they want to lock Trump up. Uh, and it's a, the tactic of any kind of banana republic where there really, in essence, in their mind, will be only one choice. I mean, I think this latest prosecution of Trump, unlike the others, is potentially serious. I think the Democratic Party wants to see it uh, essentially... Of course, they want to tie him up in court, within the primary if they can't get him through delaying, and his lawyers will certainly try to delay. Uh, but I think that's what they're gunning for. They're, they uh, they will push forth this unpalatable candidate, and a majority of Americans don't want to see a repeat of Trump uh, versus Biden, uh, and, and they will crush. They're already beginning a very vicious campaign to discredit both Kennedy and Cornell West. Now, remember, uh, Kennedy, I don't know what he's pulling at now, 19, 20% or something within the Democratic primary West, uh, is in single digits, like all third party candidates, all green party candidates, but Biden's margin of error is so tiny, uh, that they can't afford to let anybody siphon off even one or 2%. So I think that's the tactic. I think they're going to run Biden, uh, as, as horrible as he is, uh, because of course the empire, those figures around Biden, like Sullivan and Blinken and others old neocons, Victoria, Newland, and the State Department, who just got promoted. She used to be Dick Cheney's foreign policy advisor. These people are protean. They slip from one administration, one Democratic administration, uh, to a Republican administration and back again. Uh, and uh, I think that's their game plan. I, it, it may backfire, but I think that's the game plan. What is
2: this, you think, more serious indictment that Trump is now facing? Is that the Georgia one?
1: Yeah, I think the Georgia one is probably the more serious one. And it, it's tougher for him to disentangle himself from it because it's not a federal prosecution. Remember, he can always pardon himself if he's reelected for federal crimes. Um, you know, how far it will go, again, I, I don't know. But I think that that is the Democratic strategy, is not to provide any kind of credible alternative, both in terms of a candidate, i.e., Biden, or in terms of policies. But to essentially crush and destroy and discredit all potential opposition, both within the party, independents such as Cornell West, uh, and uh, and Trump himself. And Trump is clearly going to be the nominee, uh, unless you know something catastrophic happens.
2: The uh, I watched as you must have uh, Kennedy with Tucker Carlson. Uh Once you get past his vocal problems, and if you are prepared to park uh, his aberrant views on the Israel-Palestine track, it was a tour de force, wasn't it, Chris?
1: Yeah, but I'm not willing. I mean, having spent seven years covering that conflict, as you know, I was the Middle East Bureau Chief for The New York Times, I don't forgive any anyone on the Palestine issue because the Palestinians are friendless. I'm uh, not f- friendless within the circles of power. They're alone. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he, he, he is embracing uh, the most retrograde narrative uh, on Palestine, uh, not even a mainstream narrative, but one coming from the far right. Uh, I mean, this is kind of the tragedy of Kennedy uh, because you're right. He he does confront uh, imperial power. He, he has called for freeing Julian Assange. Uh, there are many good aspects to his policy, but I, it's personal, I suppose, for me, and as having spent so long, uh, th- th- those seven years in that conflict, um, I just won't, uh, you know, if, if somebody won't stand with the Palestinians, then I won't stand with them. And I don't think it's a tangential issue, because you know very well, George, that in order to do that requires tremendous political and moral integrity. Uh, because there's a huge price to pay. The Israel lobby is uh, fierce and strong, both within the U.K., but especially in the U.S. Uh, it funds, has massive uh, resources. It, uh, and so if you actually stand up, I mean, the irony is that Dennis Kucinich, as a member of the House of Representatives, did stand up to the Israel lobby, and he is now the campaign manager for Bobby Kennedy. Uh, but I, I find his, the things that he has uttered, which are just factually untrue, I mean frankly racist uh towards the Palestinian is so disturbing for me and I uh, I wish Dennis or somebody would get to him uh to to at least enlighten him a bit about uh that apartheid state and the billions of dollars the US has sent to prop up and the massive war crimes that it has committed in places like Gaza using using sophisticated weaponry against uh, people that do not have an army, a navy, artillery units, command and control, uh, ar- you know, armored units uh, or anything else. So and they call it a war. I mean, so, um, yes, the Bobby does say some very refreshing things. And yet it's twinned with this uh, blindness uh, on one of the worst crimes, I think, of American imperialism. And that is what has been meted out to the Palestinian people through the Israeli surrogates who we fund and arm. And I have been in Gaza after they have bombed refugee camps and picked up the, the metal pieces. And one piece I picked up said, made in Dayton, Ohio. I mean, we should be clear about the U.S. complicity in this.
2: Indeed, of course, I feel you on, on all of that. Maybe we'll return to that another time because I need to move, as it were, to other American, and for that matter, British, imperial crimes. This is the anniversary of the Anglo-American, mainly American, uh, overthrow of uh, Mossadegh, the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, for the crime of seeking to nationalize Iranian oil uh, for his people. Now, uh, I've looked, as you have, uh, at this anniversary, at the Uh, more closely at the detail, one of which jumped out and I hadn't thought of before. Uh, The Americans and the British in particular were using the uh, religious fundamentalists in Iran to help destabilize Mossadegh's secular and leftist government uh, rather in the way that We did in Egypt uh, later in that decade and have been doing in different places ever since. It's not something that anyone ever gets taught in school or, I dare say, at university. Uh, The empire is more than happy uh, to encourage uh, Islamist fanaticism as long as it's against a secular ruler of whom they disapprove.
1: Yeah, well, and that's what we did in Afghanistan, and that's what Israel did in Gaza by promoting Hamas in order to destroy Fatah. It's a a very old uh, technique. I mean, one of the things, I don't want to keep carping on Kennedy, but he's going on and on about how despotic these Arab regimes are. Well, these Arab regimes are despotic because they were largely created and are funded uh, by the United States, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, and of course, what you get is blowback. Uh, you've got blowback in Iran. You've got blowback in Gaza, uh, blowback in, in Afghanistan. And so, uh, yes, you're exactly right that they, they, they create these forces. I mean, there were secular, even left-wing uh, forces in Afghanistan uh, that did not uh, cater to uh, when we were fighting, when we were backing the fight against the Soviets, uh, and and we 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 build these forces, and then we condemn these countries, uh, or we condemn despotic dictatorships uh, that uh, uh, that uh, that we're, we are totally responsible for forming. So yes, it's I mean the whole fifty three coup in in uh, Iran is just a travesty from the word go because Mossade was a moderate, as you know, political you know democrat who what he re- he was came from the aristocracy himself. He was hardly some kind of Left-wing, uh, you know, Communist Party didn't like him at all. Uh, he was, a, in essence, a feudal landlord himself, but he wanted to control, or he wanted Iran to control its own resources. I mean, it's just basic. I mean, uh, the the British uh, would eventually became BP, but the what was called the Anglo—I uh, forget the name of the company before it became British Petroleum. But they, they, they didn't even know how much oil they were taking out of the country. Uh, so. Yeah, it was that basic. He wanted a he wanted Iran to control its oil revenues, and that was just too much for the British and the Americans. And of course, after he was overthrown, I think it was either forty or sixty percent of the British production were turned over to to uh, American oil companies and and British oil companies. So it was that. And then, of course, we get the Shah, who is and and we built the secret police in Iran, Savak, which was one of the most brutal secret police formations in the world in terms of torture and extrajudicial killings and everything else and of course eventually we saw the rise of Khomeini and the Islamic revolution. Uh, but that's not a history most Americans know. We're, you're talking about the anniversary 60 years ago this week. Uh, it's not even frankly uh, I believe the British government is still not even acknowledged that uh, they were responsible for that coup uh, the American government had to because Kermit Roosevelt wrote this self-serving memoir about how he'd done it. Um, but uh, that, 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 those kinds of distortions, that kind of massive political interference in a country and the empowering of uh, authoritarian figures like the Shah uh, is, uh, and we'll go back to the founding of Saudi Arabia, I mean, who created the House of Saud. It was It was uh, American oil companies and the U.S. State Department, and there's that book, A Peace to End All Peace, which does a good job of kind of chronicling that. Uh, But that's not a history I think most Americans are taught. They're not aware of. Um, We are completely responsible, completely complicit, uh, and uh, and these are crimes, terrible crimes against against Iranians, against all sorts of people, which we're responsible for. And then, of course. We, you know, it's, we, we, abla- we blame uh, the, the uh, oppressed uh, for their own oppression, which is go back to what the Israel lobby does to the Palestinians.
2: It's a history that continues to repeat itself, of course. I've been looking closely, perhaps you have, at the situation in Niger, where uh, the uh, regime has emerged, uh, overthrown the corrupt uh, puppet government, a French puppet in this case, largely, although there's a very substantial $100 million American military base in Niger, which is potentially at risk uh, in the the situation. And lo and behold, uh, a shot in the arm appears to have been delivered to the Islamist rebels, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, in Niger and in neighboring Nigeria. They already control 40% of Burkina Faso. And where did all these uh, Islamist forces come from? They were introduced by us into Libya in order to overthrow a secular uh, Arab regime of of which we entirely disapproved. So it's history that repeats itself on and on, isn't it?
1: Well, and that's what happened in Syria. We armed the quote-unquote moderate rebels to overthrow Assad. Uh, and, and then when we realized that we just sent, I think we spent $500 million or something, arming uh, all sorts of people that essentially had flooded in from Iraq, uh, then we started bombing them. I mean, and we acted, in, in essence, as Assad's de facto air force. It's just one debacle after another. Uh, with, in Libya is just a terrible crime, whatever you think of Gaddafi. Uh, what came after Gaddafi is just a nightmare for the Libyan people. I would, I think that's also true in Syria, true in Iraq, and true in Afghanistan. Uh, and it's this, these blundering U.S. policies. They never know where they're going, by the way. They, 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 they carry out these interventions, uh, without any clear vision of what it is going to lead to. Uh, and I think that was true 20 years in the Middle East. Uh, and, and look what we left behind: Ruined states, millions of displaced, uh, hundreds of thousands of dead, unsuffering. Uh, and and then there is this historical amnesia. It's it's not mentioned. We're not held responsible as we should be responsible. Uh, They've left the Taliban, and it's there's not a country in the world that recognize recognizes the Taliban uh, government. It's just it's 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 horrendous. It's criminal. It's an out-of-control imperial power lurching from one debacle to the next. We didn't even talk about Ukraine. Uh, and and now they're kind of baiting and provoking China. And I think a lot of it has to do with money. It's it's uh, they, they, The war machine uh, needs to keep fed, keep itself fed. Uh, it doesn't, uh, uh, this is what the expansion of NATO largely was about. Uh, and uh, the consequences are kind of, Irrelevant uh, it was. We know from the Afghan papers that years ago, the the military and political leadership understood that the Afghan war was unwinnable, like Ellsberg showed us in the Vietnam War. Uh, but why does it keep going year after year after year? Because there are uh, major uh, war industries, uh, Halliburton and, and Northrop Grumman and Raytheon that are just making piles of money off of this, uh, and it, it is it's suicidal. And at the same time, by diverting these massive resources into uh, the kind of permanent war economy, the United States, and we'll go back to Hawaii, is collapsing, literally collapsing. I do
2: want to talk uh, about Ukraine, but in in an American context, I am developing in my own mind the thesis uh, that you may have heard me mention earlier, namely that this is a peculiarly democratic party War and that the depth of the corrupt relationship between uh, leading figures in the Democratic Party and who knows maybe even the party itself uh, with the corrupt oligarchy and and the political class in Ukraine may actually be one of the most significant reasons for this war. What are they trying to cover up? What will be revealed? Uh, When the books are opened, should the regime in Kiev fall? There does seem to me to be a peculiarly Democrat thing about this Ukraine war. What do you think of that thesis?
1: So I would just, this caveat so the, the, the political configurations in the United States have changed with. Uh, Trump's seizure, in essence, of the Republican Party. So the establishment wing of the Republican Party has fused with the uh, leadership of the Democratic Party. So all these figures like Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, they're virtually one ruling establishment party versus Trump. Now, remember that uh, the old establishment Republican Party and the Democratic Party had very little daylight on issues of trade policy, wholesale surveillance or war. Uh, they were in complete agreement. So what you're seeing is that old establishment wing perpetuate the war. What what opposition to Ukraine actually comes from within? It's not large, but it comes from within this new Republican Party, which is the Trump Party or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so uh, that 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 uh, establishment is essentially fed. It 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 is it is a product of. Uh, the permanent war economy. Remember, these large corporations fund these candidates. They control the airwaves. uh, So uh, the the quote-unquote pundits and experts, most of whom are drawn from the military and the intelligence communities, serve as cheerleaders for war. They often sit on the very boards uh, that are making money off of war. Lloyd Austin, the new Secretary of Defense, came directly from the board of the Rand Corporation. So uh, that, that uh, kind of the, 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 the poison of uh, or the control of the permanent war economy of the political process and the media uh, is essentially uh, perpetuating uh, wars, whether it's proxy wars in the Ukraine or whether it was the 20 years of war in, uh, in the Middle East, because that political class is utterly subservient. And beholden, and I again want to say the, the the all of the journal, quote unquote, journalists and ex quote unquote experts and everybody on the airwaves uh, are as well. And that is that we you know this is the 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 war industry is so large it's a state within a state as Karl Leibniz once called the German military in the eve of World War One the enemy from within. Well, that's what they are. They're the enemy from within. And if you cross them or attempt to cross them, uh, then your political future is, in essence, eradicated. They're impossible to cross. And remember, Biden was calling for an invasion of Iraq five years before we actually went into Iraq. Um, I think you mentioned that this was a long project. uh, They weren't even talking about weapons of mass destruction then. Um, And that's because the war industry, I think it's a mixture of both uh, the, the necessity of projecting military power for economic reasons, but also hubris. These are people who uh, are not reality based. I mean, if you remember, the arguments were that we were going to implant democracy in Baghdad and it was going to emanate outwards across the Middle East and the oil revenues would pay for the reconstruction. Um, This was, uh, you know, to use Thomas More's term, utopia, as it was originally coined, no place. It is not a reality based viewpoint. Um, And these are the people who cycle after cycle. I mentioned earlier people like Victoria Nuland or the Kagans or Elliot Abrams. They just leap from and they're always wrong. I dealt with them in the war in Salvador, Kagan and Elliot Abrams, and their job in the State Department was to discredit what reporters on the ground were reporting. Uh, They're always wrong, but it, it doesn't matter because they perpetuate the interests of the war machine, just like those journalists, Thomas Friedman. Nick Kristof, George Packer, they're wrong. They're completely, they were completely wrong about Iraq, but it doesn't matter uh, because they serve the centers of power and they are rewarded for it, and it doesn't matter how many times they're wrong. So th- there's a seizing up both within the economy, within the political system, and within the media in the United States that makes it utterly impossible to counter uh, or expose what's happening.
2: Well, except in the way that we are doing now. Uh, In inverse proportion, the audiences of this uh, lie machine that the so-called mainstream media has become, uh, their audience is disappearing. Uh, The more they lie, the fewer who watch them. So if you were drawing a graph, Chris, I think the audience of people like you, of people like me, people like Jimmy Dore, Uh, and uh, Max Blumenthal and others, our audiences are on the up and up and uh, in some cases dwarf uh, the audiences of these sofa television politics shows in the United States. So all is not lost. It might be after our time that victory prevails, but uh, it's uh, going in the right direction, I think. Thanks for joining us as always. On the mother of all talk shows, Chris Hedges. Now uh, we're having some difficulties, apparently, with the switchboard, but Fra in Belfast has got through. Welcome, Fra. What would you like to say?
0: What a privilege, George, to speak to you on your birthday. Happy birthday, brother. I love the hat. I hope it was a birthday present, George. I was thinking, uh, it just struck me recently about uh, what's you know about the German participation in the in the war in Ukraine, along with NATO and the American forces. And I was wondering uh, the reason why Angela Merkel stepped down in September 21, which was like four months before the uh, start of the the war in Ukraine. I was wondering, did maybe NATO and America want her out because she wouldn't have been in favour of the war, even though she said publicly that she wasn't going to uh, institute the uh, Minsk Accords? So I was wondering maybe was she forced to step down or did she decide to resign Mm -hmm. because she knew the war was coming? And secondly, just quickly, George, on Finland, Finland has a border, as you know, as big as Ukraine. It's joint NATO. And they're now talking about American bases. So if the Russians went in to try and keep Ukraine as a neutral country and to prevent NATO putting ballistic nuclear missiles on the border of Russia, what happens when that happens in Finland?
2: Well, it's a very grave uh, turn of events, and thanks, Fra, for your kind words. Uh, And I made the point many times over the uh, the last uh, year and a half that Sweden joining uh, NATO isn't really uh, much of a big deal. Uh, They've never been neutral. It's always been a lie. They weren't neutral uh, towards Hitler, and they are not and have never really been neutral towards NATO. And the only man that might have uh, embarked upon a different policy, Olaf Palmer, uh, was murdered in a very uh, unusual, mysterious, and still unresolved circumstances. But Finland is a different kettle of fish. Uh, Finland is literally across a small waterway uh, from Russian territory and almost within stone's throw uh, of the great Russian city of St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad. Uh, The idea uh, that NATO uh, will line up nuclear weapons uh, a stone's throw from St. Petersburg is a very grave turn of events. There's no doubt. About that. And I don't doubt that Russia will turn to that matter one day, uh, hopefully in negotiations on a new security uh, package which includes Russia and takes Russia's interests, legitimate national interests, into account. Though we are a long way off from that. But that may be one of the issues on the table in any negotiations, should they happen, to bring about an end to the Ukraine situation. Because you're right. To render Ukraine neutral, to boot NATO out of Ukraine, but have NATO and its missiles instead in Finland, uh, is uh, fraught with terrifying dangers. And I'm sure that Russia has that very much in mind. Your Angela Merkel point was, in my view, bang on the money. We don't know, can't know, uh, what it was that brought about her rather abrupt departure from office after so long, two decades in power, made Mrs. Thatcher look like like an apprentice. Angela Merkel uh, was the uh, colossus of German politics. She could have gone on and on and on. Then two things happened. First of all, we discovered that uh, Barack Obama was bugging her personal cell phone in her handbag. The American administration of Barack Obama and Joe Biden were listening in not to Angela Merkel's business telephone calls, bad enough. When you're a NATO ally, when you're supposedly a best friend, listening in to the business calls on the phone on the desk of the German Chancellor is bad enough. But it was revealed that Angela Merkel's own personal cell phone, her mobile telephone, was being tapped by her friends in the American embassy in Bonn. And In Berlin. And it is a very, very moot point, I think, as to whether or not Angela Merkel would have gone along with all of this in the way that little soldier Schultz and his bonkers Baerbock foreign minister have done. It's very debatable that she would have done so. She was a fluent Russian speaker, she grew up in East Germany. She had, like other figures on the right before her, uh, including Helmut Kohl, an understanding of the delicate balance that Germany has to play in the world, given its history and given its geography. Any sensible German statesman or woman would see that, but Schroeder does not qualify as sensible, and Baerbock is, frankly, berserk, bonkers. It is astounding to me that she is the foreign minister of a great and powerful country like Germany, a so-called green who's mad for the bombs, mad for the missiles and the tanks, the roar of the cannons. This grotesque coalition of Schultz Bearbox, Greens, and the FDP, the so called traffic light coalition, red, uh, green, and yellow, is such a dysfunction. It constitutes an abuse of power and I believe will not last long. And if the German government bans the Only opposition party in Germany, the AFD, 21% of the poll, if they ban them, I mean literally abolish them, there could be serious trouble in Germany. I'm a supporter of Die Linke, the left party in Germany, which has Just less than 5%. But together, the D-Linka and the AFD, who both oppose the war in Ukraine, speak for a quarter of the people. Of Germany, that's 20 million people plus, 25 million people almost. Are you going to render them completely without political voice or representation And if you do, will that not be just like what the Democrats are trying to do to Trump? And if you do, will that not be just like what has been done to Imran Khan in Pakistan? Can't you see the terrifying dangers of jailing your opponents, banning their publications, forcing all media to tow your propaganda line? gutting your country of anything called democracy or freedom whilst going to war across the world in the name of freedom and democracy. Don't you see the tightrope that you are on? Don't you see the perilous danger that you are in and you are placing your country in? If they can't see it, Fra, then they're not just Venom. Uh, they are stupid. They are not James Bonds. They are Mr. Beans. They are Austin Powers, which is all I've got time for, I'm afraid. But it's been a terrific show with two terrific guests and conversations that I think will live long in the memory. A big thanks to all well-wishers, to the show another almost two million people watched the show over the last seven days, and we haven't stopped counting yet, one of the uh, new, new developments is piracy. We've got people pirating our clips and achieving almost a million views on them, which is good. We're happy. In fact, we're going to start giving out an award, the Moats Pirate of the Week. We're going to start giving out. We want people to pirate our clips, but we want to be able to count them and we want to be able to keep track of them for reasons of counting. So it may be that the audience over the last seven days was more than two millions. In any case, it is very significant and I thank you for that. I thank my half a million followers on Twitter. I thank my almost 800,000 followers on Facebook. I thank my 42,000 followers on Instagram. But above all, I thank my old ma, my mother, who gave birth to me 69 years ago on this day. Thanks, ma.